bow before you. We come and worship the holy God. We thank you for the privilege of doing it. We pray for your glory and for your honor in this your day. That your word is preached and has been preached around the globe. And is still pending to be preached on the west coast and other places. Father, we pray that Christ may be appreciated and exalted and loved and magnified and proclaimed and received and believed. We pray that your name may be esteemed and hallowed. We pray that your kingdom may grow and may come. Father, we pray for those who gather to worship you wherever they are. We ask that your Holy Spirit may be with them as it is your promise that he may also come to be with us as we consider your word. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn to 2 Corinthians 13. While you turn there, um, let, me, let me state that it is good to be here to see you. I was two weeks away, and um, one of those weeks I was preaching at a family camp in Orlando. The other week I was preaching at the church uh, from where Roger and Luis Jose and Juan come from in the DR. So it is not that I have gone astray or left the faith or apostatized. Now that following two weeks, I'll be away on vacation. So I'm sorry that I'm, I'm going to miss you again two Sundays in a row. It feels really weird not being with God's people, at least for me. Uh, some people can take on and off, come and go. But some of us feel really strange when we spend a long time without gathering with God's people in our church. Now, there are many churches. Yeah, but this is home for me. So anyways, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 13. And I would like us to read verses 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians 13. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And the title today is Living Together, Dwelling Together. 2 Corinthians 13, the Word of God reads, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent. As I did it when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And this is the word of God. Second Corinthians 13 is sort of a summary of the whole letter to the Corinthians. Before I get into that, I would like to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know him, the young theologian who died at the hands of Hitler for his beliefs. He was a faithful believer. And he writes this in a little book entitled Life Together or Living in Our Father's House Together. He says, It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather in this world, to share God's word and the sacraments. Not all Christians receive this blessing, 
the imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, and the missionaries to heathen lands stand alone. And the question I ask is, do we believe that? Do we believe, believe it is a privilege of God's grace to be allowed to gather for worship on the Lord's Day with God's people in local churches? Perhaps some of us don't because some of us find it so easily to pass by that privilege. Some of us find it so comfortable to not bother about gathering with God's people and dwelling together. Now, I understand the old saying of, oh, living the saints in glory, how wonderful it will be. But living with them on earth, that is another story. Yes, it is difficult. And why it is difficult living with one another, why it is difficult to gather with the saints frequently and regularly as we are commanded, I know Charles Stanley doesn't believe that, but the Bible says do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as it is a habit of some, especially as we see that day coming soon and as we exhort and stir up one another to love and good deeds. What is the challenge? Well, the challenge is that all of us, without exception, are both simul justus et peccator. At the same time, we are righteous. We are God's people. We're the apple of God's eye, but we're sinners. And at the same time, we have the smell and aroma of Christ, but we stink. So that makes it challenging. And this morning, I just want to consider with you this a reminder of our living in our Father's house together. What is a reminder? What is the point? Well, we see a summary, a warning, and an exhortation in this brief chapter. And what is the summary? The summary is basically a summary of the letter, of the epistle. Some at Corinth were questioning seriously Paul's credentials as an apostle. They were doubting whether he was a true apostle of Christ. And they challenged him sternly to the point that Paul writes this letter and has to sort of threaten them and say, do you want me to go to you with a rod of correction? Do you want me to go with you with, with, with a stiff spirit? I will not spare those who oppose because they thought Paul didn't have enough credentials to be an apostle. Perhaps it is the story of our day to a point that unless you have a, some kind of academical studies or masters or demean or MDiv or THM or whatever it is, well, you're not qualified to be heard. I believe credentials are important. I've always said that a person who wants to aspire to the ministry, has to show that his mind is capable to the rigorous study of theology and the scriptures. I don't have a problem with that. But credentials never, never, ever trump character. You can have all the credentials, credentials in the world, but character and calling is what qualifies for ministry. And here's Paul, who was a Roman citizen by birth, from a city, from the city of Tarsus, 
but he was not Greek. And as he was not Greek, he was not well received among the sophisticated, cultured, learned Greeks of Corinth. He was accused of being slow in speech. His speech was despised. He says that in the letter. Perhaps he had some kind of defect speaking, or maybe they didn't like his accent when he spoke Greek or Latin because he was a Hebrew. Or they said that also his appearance was contemptible. Tradition says that Paul was a short, chubby, sort of, uh, I don't know, like the humpback of Notre Dame, that he was not a very handsome person to look at, and that he also had some illness in his eyes. So, so it was kind of uncomfortable to be in his presence and to see him. The Corinthians despised Paul over this, and they actually preferred what Paul calls the super apostles. And the super apostles were believers, apparently, or maybe false believers, but they were very learned, very gifted, very well presentable, powerful preachers. They were sophists. They were instructed in, in the, in the uh, hortatory of the Greeks, and they dazzled the Corinthians. And they rather have those than this Jewish guy who was so contemptible and so despicable. Well, Paul alludes to his weaknesses, to his persecutions, to his illnesses, to his sufferings as the credentials of his ministry. We find that Second Corinthians 7 and following. But then he also says, but, but just in case, I also have the marks of being a true apostle. And the marks is I'm a res being a witness of the physical resurrection of Christ, being appointed and called directly by Christ, and having the supernatural gifts that were given to the apostles. And the apostles were 12, by the way. Their names are inscribed in the foundations of heaven. And I'm sorry that our friend Maldonado's name is not there. So all of these apostles we have today, they are not true apostles. There were 12 of them, and these were the qualifications and the characteristics. And Paul, in the middle of that, still shows his meekness to the Corinthians. He says in verse 9, But we are glad that when we are weak, you are strong. And your restoration is what we pray for. So even in that opposition, Paul says, but I'm glad. If you despise me over my weaknesses, that's fine. Those are my, my credentials as a servant of Christ. I serve one who was also came in weakness. And as Pastor Otto Sanchez says, when we have a conflict, we're not called to be right. We are called to show the character of Christ. So many of us feel that we need to win. Like when we embark in those social media fights and those social media arguments and we always need to have the last word and say the last thing. But as I've said before, I've never seen anybody coming to the Lord by arguing with me and I've never seen anybody ever tell me, you're right. Even my wife the other day, we had this discussion. I walk into the room, she's ironing and I says, do you need the lights? She says, yes, I do. She says, do you allow me to make a scientific test? as to whether you need the lights. Go ahead, do it. And I turn the lights. says, how about now? Do you need them? She says, no, I can keep ironing. So tell me, who was right? And she said, me. So yeah, nobody changes their mind, even if it's obvious, right? So don't argue. Don't seek to win. Seek to show the character of Christ in an argument. That's the way we win. We don't win by stumping over people. We win by showing the meekness of Christ. That's what Paul is doing. He was ready at the same time to grab the bull by the horns. 
In verse 2, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. Because this is all he writes hard, but he's weak in presence. If I come again, I will not spare them. And in verse 10, he writes, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So it is not that Paul was kind of a, a cowardly guy, that he didn't like controversy. Have you heard that statement? Oh, I, I don't like controversies. Well, well, people who do not like controversies should stay away from leadership. Because leadership brings a lot of controversy many times. One thing is to say, I don't like to fight. I don't like to argue. I don't, I don't enjoy picking up fights. But if, oh no, I don't like confrontation, then find something else to do. Paul is ready to confront those who were sinning. Because the issue was not him. The issue was the gospel and the glory of God in the church. Now, he says, I will use my spiritual authority. I'm an apostle of Christ, and I'm going to show you. But spiritual authority, he says, is not to tear down. It is to build up. That's why I'm praying that you change, that I may not need to come to you that way. Because at the end of the day, the only spiritual authority that exists in the church is that of the Word of God. The authority of pastors and elders and bishops is delegated authority. And the only authority they have is to open up the Bible and say, Thus says the Lord, showing you from Scripture. There's no anointed in church. Many of you come from churches that have the anointed. And that anointed cannot be touched. Nothing can be said of him. He cannot be contradicted. That is nonsense. There's no anointed because all of us, according to First Peter 2, are priests and kings and we are a holy nation. And we stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. When you find any congregation, any pastor or group of pastors who bring to you the thing of, well, we, we are the elders and you should uh, submit to the elders' authority. Run. You seen those Facebook things that, that say, run. And you run, run. Because the only authority in Scripture is the authority that Christ delegated to his church through the word and those who have authority to rule and elders rule they rule as servants not to lord it over the flock now having said that paul gives a warning to the corinthians this is the summary of the letter what's the warning well in verses five and six we find a very sobering warning paul says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Nothing, in my opinion, is as dangerous, as damning, as mortal, as the danger of self-deceit. Nothing is worse than that. Religious self-deceit puts your eternal soul in jeopardy, in danger of eternal perishing. And Paul is dealing with the Corinthians and warns them 
And he says to them, examine yourselves. Because there is a great danger in being self-deceived. Jesus spoke of that. Jesus said, many will come to me on that day. Lord, Lord, in your name we prophesied. In your name we cast out demons. In in your name we did miracles. But I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Serious stuff. Now, it's interesting the play on word Paul uses here. Because he says first... Test or examine yourselves. And then secondly, he says, check if you passed. It's like, here's a test. You you guys have that in school, college, university, whatever. Here's a test. And then they give you the correct answers. Grade yourselves, right? That's exactly what Paul is doing. Here's a test. Do it. Now here's the correct answer. Grade. And what's the correct answer? The correct answer is that being in the faith is not the result of emotions. Being in the faith is the result of being regenerated and made to be born again by the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with how you feel about your salvation. Being in the faith is not saying a prayer. Paul Washer, I believe it is, I heard saying, that there's nothing more damning to modern evangelicalism than this false belief that because you said a prayer, you are saved. And you can see that on television time and time. Check it out tonight. Go through the religious channels. Pick one and observe the sermon. They are talking to you about how to live a great life. They are talking to you about politics. They are talking to you about any subject. And then at the end... Out of the blue, the preacher says, well, by the way, we want you to know Jesus. And if you acknowledge Jesus in your heart and you pray this prayer with me, oh, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and I acknowledge you and receive you into my heart, amen, amen, you are saved. Call us and we will send you some material to grow you and help you grow in your faith. That is a false, damning heresy. Nobody is saved by saying a prayer. As a matter of fact, when you come to pray, because I know the argument comes from Romans 10, not that dumb. When you come to pray and confess Jesus with your mouth, long ago you already believe in your heart. Because if you're dumb and deaf, what happens? You cannot confess him with your mouth. So you can do sign language then. Oh, okay, great. But what about if, my, if I'm not too smart and I'm not even have, I don't even have a proper theological, proper confession? You're still saved if you believe, if you gave your heart to Him, if you embrace Him as your Savior and as your Lord in faith and repentance. So it has nothing to do with repeating a prayer. And it has nothing to do either with accurate doctrine or ministerial success. Oh, but God blesses me. There's so many wicked men out there still preaching despite their adultery, despite their corruption, despite their immorality because they are, they are anointed that God blesses. Read Psalm 50. God's silence is not a sign of approval. It says, you think that because while you were doing these things and I kept silent that I was like you? No, I'm not. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to reveal who am I and who you are. 
So none of that is a sign of ministerial success. The test of faith is very simple. It's right under your noses in that text. Check what? If Christ Jesus is in you. See, the test of faith is not, do you have enough conviction of sin? Do you have enough sadness? Do you have enough fruits? Do you have enough this or that? No. The test of faith is outside of us because it is 100% in Christ and is it inside of us because it is whether Christ Jesus is in us or not. Then right after that, you see Paul's conciliatory heart in verse 7. He says, but we pray to God that you may not, that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to you to have failed. I love that heart. These guys are challenging him. These guys are saying to Paul, you're, you're a dummy. You, we don't want you. We don't want your ministry. We want the ministry of uh, brother whomever. He's a true apostle. You're not. He says, guys, even if I'm a failure, even if I don't have the credentials to be an apostle, my desire and my prayer for you is that you may pass the test, is that you may grow and be strong. Paul prayed for the success of those who opposed him. Again, because the point is not who wins the battle, who wins the fight. The point is who shows the character of Christ in the conflict. And Paul did. Because a forgiving spirit is a telltale sign of having been forgiven. A forgiving spirit is the sign of understanding the gospel. You can have all the doctrine. You can have all the learning. You can have all the knowledge. You can have all the signs with you. But if you do not have a forgiving heart, you do not understand what it is to be forgiven. That's Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who cast insults at you. Lying. Make sure they're lying. If you're the lazy bum at the office and they say you're a lazy bum, you just want to be reading the Bible and preaching the Bible, but you don't work, you don't do what you're told, that, that's not, oh, I'm suffering for the gospel. No, you're suffering because you're lazy and you're not doing your job. So please, don't, don't give that lecture to HR. Well, I'm being persecuted and I'm going to put a lawsuit to the company because this is for my faith. No, no, no. This is not for your faith. Go get your job. That's what they pay you for. Now, if they insult you, lying. If they persecute you, lying. If they oppose you, lying and unfairly, here's Jesus' remedy. Pray for them. And what do, you, what do we pray? Oh, imprecatory psalms. I know them all. No. No, Jesus says, God makes his son to rise over righteous and unrighteous. He makes his rain to fall over good and bad. Therefore, you do good to them. Somebody asks you to go for a mile, you go too. Somebody takes away your tunic, you give them your inner garment too. Somebody hits you in the right cheek, give them the left. So that you are children of your father who is in heaven. And then Paul says, at the end of the day, truth 
stands for itself. And that is verse 8. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. It's okay. Do you have the truth? Are you grounded on Scripture? Do you know you didn't do it or you did it? Who cares? Truth stands for itself. There's an advice I give to the young guys in Komatsu when they come. I tell them, it doesn't matter who takes the credit. Because normally, as you know, rubbish falls down and credit falls, goes up. Right? That's the way the corporate world works. It's the fault of the little guy at the shop, but it's the glory of the executives. Well, guys, that's the way it is. We're not going to change that. Now, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Remember, somebody's watching. Do your work mightily, and someday someone will say, yeah, we're laying up, but not that one. I need that one. Someday someone will say, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a freeze of merits and incentives and increases, but not her. I know her. Give her some. Get it from wherever. Because somebody will be watching. Just do your job. And if you're a Christian, Paul says, you do it as unto the Lord. It is from him whom, from whom you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Truth stands for itself. And Spurgeon was the one, I believe, who said the proverbial, truth is like a lion. There's a lion on the street who's interested in going to defend the lion. Oh, we need to protect him. It's not a little cat. It's not a stray dog. It's a lion. Don't worry. He can take care of himself. Truth is exactly like that. And Paul makes that point. And then, finally, Paul gives this exhortation. Verse 11. When I say finally, it doesn't mean I'm finishing. I'm just saying this is the third point. By the way, I, I mean, I know, but just saying. Finally, brothers, verse 11, rejoice Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And I call these holy goals, living together. What do we do besides having this forgiving, forbearing, kind spirit? What do we do? Well... Rejoice, he says. Rejoice is not giddiness. He's not being giggly. He's not superficial emotions. Rejoicing, you can always replace rejoice for trust God. He knows what he's doing. Believe him. Wait on him. Be comforted in him. That's what Ezra and the priest told the returning exiles when they came back to Israel. He says, don't weep. You heard the law. You want to weep because you've, you've seen how much you've broken it. Don't weep over that. Go home and eat and enjoy your meal. God has forgiven you, has brought you back. He has restored. Rejoice and rejoice how? The glory of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. That is our joy. If he has forgiven you, rejoice. Not superficial downplaying of emotions. There are times we weep. In fact, James says, is anyone sad among you? Pray. Is anyone happy? Sing praises. He doesn't say to the one who said, oh, well, you have to sing because joy is a principle. No. Go ahead and pray and weep and weep with those who weep. But rejoice because you've been forgiven. And at the end of the day, God is in charge. 
Seek restoration. I love the word on seek restoration. Aim for restoration. Re remember when the disciples, the, the, the sons of Zebedee, had come back from fishing and Jesus was walking to them and they were mending the nets? I know we live in modern, modern times, but back in the day when we were younger, I remember that when you would just run and, and break one of your pants on the knees, your mom would bring a patch and put it on. Remember my U.S. mail patch on my right knee when I was a kiddo. Because it's a lot cheaper to put a patch and mend it than to buy a new set of pants. Well, that's the verb. Aim for putting patches. Aim for mending. Mending who? <laughs> Ourselves. Somebody caught you? Somebody didn't greet you well this morning? Somebody said you the wrong thing this morning? Some of you are falling asleep and are ticking me off by falling asleep. Put a suture to your heart and keep preaching, right? That's the way it works. Why? Because we're sinners. That's what Jesus told the disciples in Gethsemane. You couldn't wait and stay with me an hour? I know, the flesh is weak. It, Jesus said it to the disciples. So, suture your own heart. Now, sometimes we cannot do it on our own. And we need to go to the person and say, hey, brother, sister, you know what? I'm sorry we had this issue. Can we just put it behind us and go over it and talk about it and boom. Boom, and you fix it. But whatever it is, don't let root of bitterness boil and stay inside. I think it was Friday or Saturday. I forget when. I, I really had some hard thoughts against Adam. Adam, the guy in the garden. Really hard thoughts. Because I have this bush and this hatch in my backyard that I love, but it always is intertwined with this, with this weed, this bad thing that keeps crippling on it, and I have to be pulling it all the time, and it messes up the pool. Honestly, I had very hard thoughts. But then I said, well, maybe Adam is saved. I mean, he also got Christ, so I cannot curse him because he's blessed by God. But I didn't feel happy with him. Point being, we live in a fallen world. Mend it, fix it, put a suture on it, and move on. But don't let that thorn and thistles grow in the heart of your faith because that's conducive to nothing good. Paul says, or before Paul says, just a note, don't seek vindication. I used to live in that world. Somebody to vindicate you. Don't seek vindication. God has already forgiven the brother or sister who offended you. Do you realize that? They are forgiven too. And you are forgiven too. So don't expect that God will send some plague to their home and burn them with fire because they didn't say good morning to you today. It's not going to happen. So don't seek vindication. Just move on. Don't be bitter. Comfort one another. Is the older advice Paul gives them. And you know the old verb parakaleo. Or parakaleo, as we should say it, because we roll the R's and the Greeks too. Come alongside others and help them and encourage them and lift them up. Have you seen the video of the marathon runners? And there's a guy coming in first and another fellow is coming in second. And you see that the guy coming in first is really dehydrated. He's falling apart. And this guy stops and grabs the one who's coming first and starts holding him. And all the other guys who are running behind start passing them. And he brings this guy to the, to the finish line. They ask him, why did you do that? 
You would have won. He says, yeah, but my, my parents didn't teach me that. I had to help them. That's comfort one another. Just come and comfort others. And you know what he did? He put himself aside. Let me give you a trick to those who suffer from ongoing depression as one who deals with it. You know when you're most depressed? When you're less useful and less productive and less engaged in serving others. I think I've told you that, that my bosses in Komatsu asked me, when are you planning to retire? He said, as long as you want to keep me, as long as I can work being happy and productive, because I no longer work for money or for fame or for glory or for promotion, I'm too old for that. If I can be happy and useful and productive, I'll keep working. I don't have any plans to go anywhere. Now, it comes to the same in church. This church, nobody's loving. Who are you loving? Nobody invites me. Who are you inviting? Nobody talks to me. Who are you talking to? Just get out of yourself and come alongside people and encourage them, help them, boost them, prod them, admonish them if needs be. Paul says, agree with one another. Literally, be of the same mind. No, no, wait, 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 wait. You're a Democrat, and I'll never be a Democrat. Can't be the same mind with you. Well, hold it, hold it. Being of the same mind is not becoming a Democrat if you're a Republican or vice versa. Being of the same mind is exactly what was prescribed to the Philippians. Consider Christ. Whenever you feel like, you dummy, you idiot. Well, stop, stop, stop. Consider Christ. Being God, existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God something to grasp, but he emptied himself, humbled to the point of becoming a servant, obedient servant, to the point of death. So consider that. Oh, as you're considering Christ, then take a look at yourself and lower your mind and start esteeming others as better than yourself. Oh, and as you do that, while you're considering Christ, who was he? The servant of God. And then start serving those you esteem as better than yourself. And bingo! And all of a sudden, you forget, oh, my father did this to me when I was three, and that's why I'm depressed. You forget that. You don't have time for that. You're busy. Paul says, agree. Be of the same mind. Think the best of one another. Look for the best of one another. Let me say something about this humility. It, it, it's a story. I have to tell it. You remember Roger and Luis Jose and Juan when they came to serve us with the music ministry. And, and thank God for them. They asked about you guys last week. And they were doing great. The music is sounding great. We're so happy for what you did. You remember them well. They, they stayed in my house. And, and the two times they stayed in my house was this fight. Because in my house, since we're empty nesters, we have a nice guest room that has a view to the pool and has a private bathroom. And then we have the other room that we lend. And, and you have to go through the hallway to take the other bathroom for that one. And that one doesn't, that has a parking view view. You know that when you go to your hotels, right? You want to go with your hotel.com and then show up and pay 50 bucks for the room. And then you say, can you change it? No, I'm not going to change it. You're going to get the dumpster view because you're paying 50 bucks, right? So, okay, these guys get into a fight 
No, no, you take it. You take it. You take it. They are fighting over who's taking the bad room because they wanted to get the bad room for them and leave the good room to the other. That happened twice. Well, last week or two weeks ago, I go to Orlando, and I happen to be with Otto, their pastor, and with a man from the church who was traveling with him to help him. And I walk into the little place they were staying, and it was like a guest house, but very little, very little place, not too cozy. And it, has a, the, it was like an efficiency. It has this room, this fridge, whatever, and then a nice large bed and a tiny little bed on the side. And I go to Samuel, the one who's traveling with him. Samuel, tell me, who's sleeping on the big bed? He says, I couldn't convince a man. I have to take the big bed. And he said that he was going to sleep on the small bed or sleep outside or whatever. But he wouldn't take the big bed. And then he came to me. That's where they learned it from. They've been 31 years under the ministry of that guy. And they are just naturally trained to humble themselves. Because that's what they've been, it's been modeled to them all these years. That's Paul's point. And then he says, and be at peace. Be at peace. Don't we have peace with God through Christ? How do we have peace? By faith. Through Christ. Faith alone, Christ alone. Here's the doctrine. Sola fide, I'm a reformed. But I'm fighting the planet. Nobody wants to deal with me. No relative, no friend, no brother, sister, nobody from any other church because whenever I encounter them, it's going to be we're going to pick a fight. Yes, because I'm defending the truth of sola fide. You have so many problems inside. Because if you have peace with God through Christ, you will be a person of peace. And if you don't believe me, it is not me, but Jesus said, blessed are the peace makers they will see god it is psalm 37 that says stop fretting stop fighting in a little while the wicked will be no more but the meek will inherit the earth you know what's the most godlike thing we can do god i want to be like you and we sing oh lord make me like you and we sing it 120 times right with a lot of emotions. Do you want to know what is the most godlike thing we can do? Be reconciling. Second Corinthians 5.17. Paul says, God was in the business of reconciling people, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here it is. He sent his son to take the war away. He sent his son so that he who knew no sin might become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the business. What is the most godlike you and I can do? Godlike thing. To be like God and to be reconciling people. To really make it difficult to pick a fight with us. Now I'm married to a person who is reconciling, but she, not for those reasons. She says that she doesn't fight me because you don't fight with, with crazy people. Because you don't descend to their level. But that we can follow the example and say, okay, I'm not going to fight because my God reconciled me to himself. Therefore, I'll be a reconciling person. Because if you're a conflicting and conflictive person, I have reasons to say, honestly, examine yourself. If, you, if your life is characterized by conflict, 
by wars, by struggles, by fights, if your church life is characterized by that, honestly examine yourself. And if you're not sure, do one of those hard things. I encourage you to do what I know it's going to hurt you if you do it because I've done it and it's painful. Ask someone, someone close, a spouse, an adult child, give me your picture. You leave the place weeping. But it helps because it helps you to see yourself as you are, not as you think you are. And then Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you is this a result or a consequence? Yes. You, are, you have peace with God, you will be peaceful. You are peaceful, you will enjoy the presence of the God of peace and the God of love. Because at the end of the day, our faith is shown in how we reflect what we have received. We give of grace that out of which grace we received. And guess what? I had a page and a half to go, but I have 42 minutes talking, and I'd rather not finish and stop here than kill it by trying to finish my notes. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spend together around your word. We pray that you may help us to live together in humility, in encouragement, in a reconciling spirit without bitterness, seeking the welfare of others. And we pray that you make us as Paul, because Paul was following Jesus. Make us humble, make us meek, make us servants. Root out any bitterness in our hearts and help us to honor you and to glorify you through our living together. In Jesus' name, amen.